0: Welcome to week one of our new series, The Seven Deadly Sins. My name's John. I'm the pastor here at Prodigal. And uh, real quick, before we kind of dive in, I just want to give a round of applause to all of our volunteers. It was raining today and we had to move everything in the rain out here to get everything set up for you guys. So can you guys give our volunteers a round of applause? They are incredible. Many of them were here before the Lord even woke up this morning. So thank you guys so much for all that you guys do. Have you ever wondered how Eskimos in the Arctic hunt wolves? No? Um, It's fascinating. Let me give you the punchline first. They put a knife in the snow, and they wake up the next morning, and the wolf lay next to the knife dead. How does that happen? The Eskimos first, they go to the ocean, and they kill a walrus. Walrus are slow, and they're easy to hunt. Then they dip the knife of, in blood of the walrus, pull it out, and let it freeze to make a coat of blood, frozen coat of blood on the knife. Then they do it again to add another layer of frozen blood. After adding several layers of frozen blood to the knife, they place it in the snow, blade up. Then they go back to their igloo. Their job is done, they go to sleep. At night, when the wolves go out to hunt, they smell the blood. And they go up to that knife, the source, and they begin to lick it. And they go, this is delicious. This is wonderful. And they begin to lick the blood. And layer by layer, they lick off the frozen blood until they reach the blade. The blade cuts and pierces the tongue of the wolf. And the wolf doesn't even realize that he is drinking now his own blood. What began as an easy meal what began as indulgence now becomes a death sentence. When the Eskimo wakes up the next morning, he finds the wolf lay beside the knife, a prisoner of his own appetite. So it is with sin. Uh, over the centuries, theologians have created lots of categories uh, to speak about sin, and it's, at times they can sound like Bubba talking to Forrest Gump about all the different types of shrimp that he has. There's original sin, there's individual sin, corporate sin, unpardonable sin, willful sin, social sin, domestic sin, foreign sin, mortal sin, venial sin, high-handed sin, sins of ignorance, sins of omission, sins of commission, and the seven deadly sins. Now, as far as historians are concerned, or as far as they can tell, the, this list of vices was first put in writing by Evagrius of Pontus in 346 A.D. He was one of the desert fathers uh, in the early church, and these monks withdrew into the desert to face temptation and sin head on and to cultivate a cont- cont- contemplative spirit and uh, through prayer and following the example of Jesus going out into the wilderness. So Evagrius sets down a list of eight thoughts or demons that typically beset the desert hermit. Evagrius was the first. Uh, His disciple, John Cassian, took the eight and added to it further. And then a few centuries later, after Evagrius, after Cassian, Pope Gregory the Great uh, in 540 paired the list of capital vices from eight down to seven. And he wanted it to be the biblical number of of completeness. And so uh, he made it down to seven. And it is Gregory who makes pride the root of all the seven capital or deadly sins. Then in the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas, known mostly for his killer haircut. uh, (laughs) What were you thinking, Tom? He... uh, he expounded further on the seven deadly sins, and he called them the seven capital vices. Uh, capital comes from the Latin word, which means head. It meant that, that, that all sins stem from this, from these. Uh, but after about a century after Thomas Aquinas, the, the word capital no longer meant head. It meant deadly, as in capital punishment. And so uh, really 100 years after Aquinas... They misunderstand what capital means, and they call them the seven deadly sins, and the name is stuck. Uh, The seven deadly sins also have heavenly counterparts, the virtues. Uh, And so throughout this series, we're not going to just look at the seven deadly sins. Uh, If you think that we're just going to be sin bashing and making people feel bad for the next several weeks, you don't know us very well. There's also these counter-virtues that counteract each of these struggles. And so the series is about vices, but it's also about virtues. By way of analogy, think of a winter sledding. Uh, Think about going up to Shaver, in which a group of people head out to smooth a path on freshly fallen snow. The first sled goes down, carving out the rut, right? It's difficult. Other sleds follow over and over down the same path, smoothing it and packing the snow down. And after many trips, a well-worn groove develops in a path out of which it's hard to steer. You're on that path. The groove enables the sleds to stay aligned on course, gliding rapidly, smoothly, and easily on their way. Virtues are like that. The first run down, it requires some effort. Gradually, it becomes a smooth track. And when you glide down, it's almost unintentional that you continue on the straight and narrow Of course, the writer, we can always stick our leg out and be struck by the snow, usually damaging the track and going off course. So too, we can act out of character, even after being in the groove for a long time. In general, however, habits incline us swiftly, smoothly, and reliably towards certain types of actions. Uh, This is true for the virtues, but it's, it's true for the sins as well. And we're not going to look just at the sins, but the virtues. And it may be tough sledding at times, but I believe that the grooves of love will move us away from vice and towards virtue. Uh, Throughout this series, uh, each of the seven deadly sins has an animal, a corresponding animal that Christians throughout the centuries have used. And this morning, uh, pride is represented by a lion or a horse. Uh, these vices, as they developed throughout the Middle Ages, were also shown in a tree. Here's a tree of the, the seven deadly vices, seven deadly sins. Now, I don't think you guys can read Latin, but if you'll notice that pride at the, pride is the very bottom, it's the root. And out of pride comes the rest. If you notice the painting on your sermon notes, it's a sixteen. God bless you. It's a 16th century painting by Dutch artist Peter Bruegel the Elder. And he did a series of paintings on the seven deadly sins. This one's entitled Pride. And so each week throughout this series, on your sermon notes, you'll find this 15th, 16th century painting. Pride is the worst and most prevalent of the seven deadly sins because it either is the source or the chief component in the rest, it's the instigator of all sin. Pride convinces sloth that someone else should do it for me. Pride convinces lust that my pleasure comes before God's promises. Pride convinces anger that if I don't get my way, someone's going to have to pay. Pride convinces gluttony that I better get my fill. Pride convinces greed that the more I have, the more I will be satisfied. And pride convinces envy that I deserve better than you. It's the root, the tree of vices. It starts with pride. The Bible talks a lot about pride. Here's several verses. Pride only breeds quarrels, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. A man's pride brings him low, or a woman's pride, but a man of lowly spirit gains honor. Pride goes before destruction. This is where we get the phrase, pride comes before a fall. Uh, A haughty spirit before a fall. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. No other sin prevents us from stopping and asking for directions other than pride. It gets us. Your pride is your ego. And eventually your ego will become a self-imposed prison that you'll, you'll keep you in and everybody else out, and you'll keep God out. I mean, there's so much you in your life that there's no room for anybody else, and that's a bad way to live. You do know what ego stands for, right? Edging God out. So much of you, little room for anything else. Certainly not God. You know how a narcissist changed a light bulb? He just stands there with his hand on the bulb and lets the world and the universe revolve around him. Now, you and I would never say that out loud about ourselves, but it's easy for us to start living that kind of way, right? Sarah and I have been married for 12 years. Every single one of our fights, I'm sorry, intense fellowships, uh, (laughs) has stemmed from her ego and her convinced that she's right and I'm wrong. You're laughing because you know that that's not true. But honestly, every battle we have ever had pretty much centered around selfishness and pride, wanting our own way. Pride cheats us out of love. Pride hinders our capacity to give and receive what we all want, love. We start walking into rooms going, here I am, instead of walking into rooms going, there you are. It's about us. Pride has such a way of devaluing other people. Poison pride always compares what I've got with what you've got, with your, my friends with your friends, with your privileges with my privileges, and it's destructive. And we do this all the time with parents. Uh, just so you know, uh, if you're not a, a parent of a young child right now, uh, all the, the parents of young child, children, as we look around at other kids, we compare. We compare your kids and our kids. And we this is bad, but we kind of hope your kid misbehaves. We do, if we're honest. As long as it's not mine. There were four Catholic women having lunch. And one of the ladies begins to brag about her son. She goes, my son is a priest. And when he walks into a room, everybody calls him father. And the second woman said, well, my son is a bishop. When he walks into a room... Everyone calls him your grace. The third lady said, well, that's nothing. My son is a cardinal. And when he walks into a room, everyone calls him your eminence. And the fourth lady, she didn't say a word. She just kept sipping her coffee. But when the first lady said, well, what about your son? She said, okay, my son is 6'2", ruggedly handsome, broad square shoulders, great manners, well-dressed, tight, muscular body. When he walks into a room, all the women say, oh, my Lord. (laughs) <laughs> we're not talking about like a healthy sense of self-worth or proper self-esteem right like, like my son he can ride a bike now with no training wheels I'm proud of him okay that's not the kind of pride we're talking about We're talking about deadly pride, the kind of pride that's snobbish, patronizing, condescending, rude, impatient, demanding, unkind, cruel, insensitive, pompous, egocentric, haughty, vain, superior, arrogant. That's the kind of pride we're talking about. It does a number on our spiritual retina, it renders us unteachable, unreachable, unchangeable. Pride's deadly. It keeps me from helping others and from getting help from others. I've got marriage problems, too embarrassed to get help. That's pride. I've got money problems, I'm too self-sufficient to get help. That's pride. When I'm not cutting it as a parent, as a boss, as an employee, I'm too ashamed for anyone to find out. That's pride. Why is God so hard on pride? Because we make good creatures but lousy gods. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, he has a whole chapter on pride, and it's riveting. He says this, It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. You don't believe Lewis? The greatest theologian of the 20th century? There are two places in Scripture that seem to describe the origins of the devil. Satan, the accuser, Lucifer. Ezekiel 28 does it. And uh, it does so in a prophecy against the king of Tyre. But also in Isaiah 14, we're going to read that together right now. It says this in verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star. Now, that word, O morning star, in Latin, it's Lucifer. And it means light bringer. It was the Latin name for the planet Venus as the morning star in the ancient Roman era. So he says, oh, you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, Lucifer. Son of the dawn, you have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. Verse 13, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. God says, but you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit pride came from lucifer morning star he took pride in his perfection it was the ultimate he was the ultimate expression of divine beauty the capstone of god's creation here is something sickening but true we're never more like satan than when we're prideful most scholars believe that pride wasn't only the first sin of lucifer but it was also the first sin of humanity back in the Garden of Eden. Pride has taken down men and angels. What can we do? What can we do about it? Oh, but there is this other tree. There is this other tree. Not a tree of vices, but a tree of virtues. Not a tree where pride is the root, but a tree where love is the root. And from that love grows all other virtues, humility instead of pride, kindness instead of envy, temperance instead of gluttony, charity instead of greed, purity instead of lust, diligence instead of sloth, and patience in place of anger. There is this other tree. It's not about trying harder to not struggle with the seven vices, It's about focusing in on love that bears forth the kind of fruit that actually transforms the world and transforms us. And the virtue that corresponds with the vice of pride is humility. And humility, it's it's a tricky characteristic because when we finally get to the point where we go, yeah, we're humble, then we're prideful. I'm reminded of a story of a person called up to the front of the church to give him a pin of recognition for lifelong humility in serving the church in the children's Sunday school. The next week, when he wore the pin to church, the pastor took it away for being prideful. Humility, it's very tricky, yet it's what Jesus calls us to do. Gary Morsch is the founder of Heart to Heart Ministry in Kansas City, and as a physician, He has done magnificent work around the world taking medical supplies to low-income people across the globe. And several years ago, he took a trip to Calcutta and Mother Teresa's house for the destitute and the dying. He took 90 volunteers, $12 million worth of medical supplies. As he made the trip, he thought to himself, a lot of these people don't have to die. I can save their lives. I can turn it from a house of the destitute and dying to the house for the hopeful living. He was going to make it happen. When they arrived, Sister Priscilla began to assign everyone their tasks. And and as this was happening, Gary put a stethoscope around his neck just to let everyone know, let the sister know, I'm the doctor. Everyone got their assignment, and Gary was the last person. And he said, okay, Sister Priscilla, I am ready. What will you have me do? She directed him to come with her, and they went to the women's unit, but they didn't stop to help anybody. They kept going, and then they went into the men's unit, and they didn't stop to help anybody. Beginning to wonder, where am I going to help? They walked through that unit, and they thought, there must be more people in the more severely hurting area. But instead, they walked into the kitchen, and he asks, what do you need for me to do here? She said, just follow me. They walk out the door, and they see a huge pile of putrefied trash. She hands him two plastic buckets and a shovel and a saw. He said, we need to, you to haul this garbage to the city dump. It's two blocks away. You can't miss it. She smiles at him, turns, and walks away. He's standing there thinking, didn't she see my stethoscope? I'm a doctor. Doesn't she understand what I can do with these hands? in silent shock and a bit of self-pity, he began wondering, what does he do now? And there's only one thing to do. All day he carried bucketfuls of putrefied trash to the city dump At the end of the day, having moved the entire pile, he was sweaty, he was sticky, he was a mess. And he walked back into the building and he saw a sign as he entered the door, a sign, a quote from Mother Teresa. We can do no great things, only small things with great love. And he changed. He changed. At that moment, his heart wilted. He said, on that day, Mother Teresa pierced the armor I had worked so hard to construct, and my life was changed by the act of hauling garbage down the street and becoming a servant to others in need. You want to be great? Serve. You want to be lifted up? Bow down. This is the upside-down kingdom of God. Jesus talks about this a ton. There's the story of of a bike race in ancient India. And uh, it carried on even to to modern day. And the, the bike race, you get everyone there. And then as best you can, when the gun goes off, as best you can, you stay still. You try and travel the least amount of distance by the time the next gun goes off. And whoever goes the least, whoever's closest to the starting line is the winner. Imagine being in that race. And you're like, I am going to kick these guys' booties. And the like, gun goes off, and you're, and you're taken off. And, and you're looking, and you're speeding by them. You're like losers. And you're like, I'm, I'm going to win this race. But you are the loser, right? You're getting further from winning by the second. This is what we've done in this rat race of life. Look out for number one. Take care of you. It's about you. Get your needs met. And it's this upside-down kingdom. And God says, "No, no, no. You're doing it wrong. Help. Serve. Bless. Give. Love. This is the way up. Jesus shows us this. I want to invite knowing the band to come up. I've been praying this week that we would have the resolve to take head on this thing called pride. Even to the point of talking smack to it. Uh, uh, growing up, I considered myself an athlete. Part of the games was talking a little smack. Can we talk some smack to pride this morning? Hey pride, you know what? You ain't got nothing. I'm sick of you cheating me out of life out of love, out of joy. You're not my boss. You're not the center of the universe. You're not the ruler of my life. Hey, pride, watch this. I'm going to go over there and I'm going to help that person out. And I'm not going to expect a thank you or applause. In fact, check this out, pride. Nobody's ever going to know about it. Check this out, pride. I'm going to hold hands with my wife. Yeah, in public. I'm even going to give her the remote control. Check this out, pride. I'm going to write that person who wronged me a letter, and I'm going to forgive them. And as I forgive them, pride, I'm dropping you like a ton of bricks. Watch this, pride. I'm finally going to get some help. I'm finally going to admit that I have a problem. I'm sick of you telling me you can handle it. You don't need any help. It's not a big deal. You know what? I can't handle it. I do need help, and it is a big deal. So I'm going to counseling. I'm gonna work through my finances. And you know what? I'm gonna get baptized this year and declare that I follow Jesus. And I don't care what people think about it. I don't care how it looks. I'm a new person in Christ and I want the whole world to know it. And guess what pride? That's just the beginning because I'm no longer in control of my life, God is. I'm no longer the center of the universe, God is. So bye bye pride, good riddance, hasta la vista, peace. Deuces. by Felicia. Get out of my life in Jesus' name. Talk some smack to pride this week. How is pride hindering you? How is pride hindering your relationships? Some of us, I know this, we got to drop that pride like a ton of bricks right now we need to go say sorry to someone. Some of us, have been in a strained and maybe even conflicted relationship where you have anger and hatred towards that person. And I want to let you know that it's not their fault. For some of us, it's our pride that keeps us from that being restored. So would you ask God this morning, Lord, in what ways do I need to say bye-bye to pride, peace, be gone, good riddance? In what ways is pride hindering you? When you enter a room, is it here I am or there you are? As we focus in on others and as we focus in on God, our own lives are transformed. That's the way it works. That's the way it works. So God, I pray in Jesus' name for humility. I pray, God, that all this concern for ourself and looking out for number one, I pray, God, that, no, we look to you, Jesus, that love for God is never measured By how good we look, or how many times we come to church, or how many times we pray, or how much we know of the Bible, that love for God is always measured by love for other people. And so help us to do that, God. Help us to drop the pride. God, help us to get the help we need. Help us to go to a trusted person who loves us and say, Hey, I need help with this. I know that you probably think that I've got it all together, and so. This is really hard for me, but I don't have it all together and I need help. And so, Jesus, I pray, God, that this would be a place of humility and grace that we extend towards each other. And so, God, spirit of humility, move in this place. Spirit of the living God, drop pride in Jesus' name and let us follow you. God, if anybody had the right to be the center of the universe, it's you. You are the center of the universe. And you humbled yourself to be born in a manger and die on an old rugged cross for the sinners who we think were the center of the universe. So let us follow you, God, to the cross, to the life of sacrificial love for God and for others. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we declare what the real heart of worship is this morning?